People are sometimes surprised to hear that I used to be an English teacher, so I used to teach English. Yes, this unshaven ragamuffin used to teach kids about books and literature and stuff like that. I actually used to do it full time. Um, when you teach English, uh, particularly literature, you have to teach about how writers sort of break up texts and, and organise things and try and convey ideas and emphasise certain things. And what you do, and if you've done the HSC in Australia, you focus on a thing called language techniques. And so you have to regurgitate them. That's how you get good marks in the HSC. That's me being cynical, but it's true. And so language techniques are things like rhyme or alliteration or assonance, um, things like that. Pretty simple stuff, um, even though sometimes kids really struggle to get them. Um, a really common sort of language technique is a thing called juxtaposition. Juxtaposition, big word, but actually quite a simple concept. So juxtaposition is when you get two things that kind of don't really belong together and put them together. So two things that are incongruent or clash or don't really belong together and you sort of jam them together in a sentence or in a poem or in a story or whatever. And so, for example, you might read a sentence that talks about night and day in the same breath or good and bad or right and wrong. These are really simple examples, by the way. It's only a little bit more complicated. But that's juxtaposition. Now, as you read this story that Chile read out of the kind of the first generation outside the garden, it's a story of juxtaposition. So two things that really don't belong together. You see humanity, because they're enjoying the good gifts that God has given them, progressing. Okay, and hopefully you're understanding that in the right way. You can understand progressing in a different way, but it just means they're developing. They're kind of, kind of embracing their potential as a civilization. And so there's developments in farming and agriculture and art and music. We see that all in this chapter. And yet the juxtaposition is just the depravity of the human heart, just, just the sin the brokenness. And even in these verses here, you see examples of, of deception, you see examples of violence, you see examples of kind of unhealthy marriage situations, you see examples of, of murder, juxtaposition, people using God's gifts, utilising the creation mandate. Lee spoke about that in the last couple of weeks. But base human depravity, two things that don't belong together, brought together. So we're talking about this idea of civilization. Some people ask me, what the heck do you mean by that? Hopefully I'm going to be a little bit clearer as I, as I push in. Um, but basically it's kind of like building on what Lee was speaking about last week. So Genesis 3, just a recap in case you weren't here, Lee, our senior pastor, spoke on this. And basically it's where because of Adam and Eve's rebellion, I'm glossing over a whole bunch of things here, but because of Adam and Eve's rebellion, they basically got turfed out of the garden and out of God's immediate presence. So it seems to hint that this is still, they're in God's presence here as well. Okay, and this is kind of like I said, the first generation outside the garden. What does that look like? What does life look like outside the garden? So I'm going to break this up into kind of three. The first one's kind of long, the second one not as long, the last one's pretty quick. Um, just so you know, if you're looking at my first point and I'm going on and on, I'm not going for that for the whole time. Um, but, but I'm sort of breaking in, focusing on the characters. Unfortunately, we had the Bible reading a little bit shaved off, so I'm going to focus in a little bit on Seth. Hopefully, it's going to come up on the screen. If you have your Bibles in front of you, that'd be awesome. Um, but I'm going to focus in on Cain, then Lamech, who's a pretty dark and dubious character, and then filling, finishing with a bit of hope and a happier story with this character, Seth. Um, so Cain. So the way I've sort of spoken about Cain is, I actually ripped this off another guy, just full disclosure. I, I borrowed this title. Let's go with it. So Cain. A world that forsakes God but is not God-forsaken. So a world, that's hard to say. A world that forsakes God but is not God-forsaken. And so I've broken it up into four main kind of scenes, this little chunk. So scene one, let's go from verse one. Hopefully it's on the screen. 
Hopefully it matched it up properly there. So reading one um, from verse 1 of chapter 4. Adam made life to his wife Eve. She became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Verse 2. Later she gave birth to her brother or his brother Abel. Abel kept flocks. Cain worked the soil. Now this is really important. This is super important why this is at the kind of first bracket. And in this, this chapter also works in a bracket. We see blessing at the beginning. We see blessing at the end with Seth. But it's interesting because just at the end of chapter 3, the details of the curse had kind of been meted out. The punishment, the consequence of their actions. And straight away, we're given a picture of blessing. And the blessing comes in the symbolism of kind of birth. And so in earlier parts of Genesis, they're given this creation mandate to go out and spread across the world. That's what they're kind of doing, and that is actually still intact. So the fact that they're having children is a sign of blessing. They're out of the garden. They've been cast away, but they're still being blessed by God. And we're going to see that current as we wake up, make our way through as well. God blessing them in spite of their brokenness of their situation and their actions again and again and again. And there's two figures who come into this scene. The first is Cain, who's the first son. That means he's kind of the inheritor of the family name. That's how it worked in this part of the world. And then his brother Abel. And it's really interesting. They actually give them jobs. And so they grow up, I assume, into kind of healthy young men. And Abel has a job. His job is the flocks. Doesn't give a lot of detail. We can assume sheep, probably. Don't know. It might have been something else. We can assume sheep. And Cain was more into agriculture. Okay, but there's signs of blessing. And the juxtaposition is they're in, under the curse, they're out of the garden, and yet God is blessing them in their lives at this early stage. So we need to understand those kind of two threads. The second scene, I'm going to move on pretty quickly here. Verse 3, this is where it gets hard, by the way. This is where it gets pretty dark. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to God or to the Lord. Verse 4, and Abel also brought an offering Fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Again, we hear and see the kind of first signs of kind of worship or, or even kind of responding to God. They're given this opportunity to respond in God. God has given them gifts. They're given this opportunity to kind of worship him. But God doesn't accept Cain's offering and he does for Abel. It's really interesting, isn't it? Why? Because it seems kind of arbitrary. If you read this kind of on a shallow level, why does he like Cain and not Abel? Is it just personal? Or just, oh, Cain's a good guy. Oh, sorry, Cain's not a good guy and Abel is. Perhaps he's like early version of Keto, you know, like uh, Abel's bringing kind of meat and fat and um, Cain's kind of the grains guy. That was a bit of a joke, trying to lighten the load. <laughs> Feel free to laugh, but you don't have to. You don't have to. That's okay. Let's just push on. I'll, I'll ignore the awkward silence. That's okay. It seems pretty arbitrary there, doesn't it? It really does. But it's actually not. There's actually a lot of hints about how this plays out. I'm going to focus in on verse 4, where it talks about Abel. So look what it says. Abel brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. So in this context, we need to understand a little bit different to our modern world and the way we think about health and all that sort of stuff, but the fat portions were the best portions. And it says, from the firstborn of his flock. And so Abel, in other words, is giving the best of the best of the best of what he has. Okay, he's giving the absolute best. We need to remember that. And again, I'm going to go back to verse 3 where it talks about Cain's offering. Look what it says. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. He just brought some. 
Okay, it's not his best. Doesn't even really give any details about how much or the quality. We can assume it wasn't all that high. And so it's really a hard issue. God perceives Cain's heart is not devoted to him in worship, whereas Abel's is. Abel isn't given a lot of kind of character development in this story, but there's clearly, clearly a difference going on kind of internally in terms of how this plays out. There's actually an internal thing going on, and God sees right through it. But we can do this with church, can't we? We can, someone's like Cain is kind of just tipping, tipping or ticking the religious box. You know, I'm doing the right thing. I need to make God happy. Yeah, it's whatever. And for those of us who have been around church for a long time, we can fall into that so easily, can't we? I think there's a really sharp warning in that for us. I'll give you a, an example. When I was at college mission, I, I think it was my second year, I, um, I was at SNBC, which is a college in Sydney. I had a mission. It was kind of like the Drake's mission, where the rejects got sent out to Tamworth. Um, so we worked in Tamworth, Anglican. I, I, I really liked it, by the way. Tamworth was good. It was a really cool place. <laughs> but Tamworth, that, that's where we went. And it was a really cool mission in the end. It didn't seem like it was going to be, but it was really, really cool. But I was chatting to this guy. So the Anglican church has this huge kind of organ that takes up the whole back of their, their sort of building. And there was this old fellow who's probably a senior guy. When I want to say old, I don't mean that disrespectfully. Please don't take me that wrong. But he was probably about 80-plus-ish. And he used to come in three or four times a week and clean this organ. He cleaned the organ. And out of his own money, he would maintain it. Now, I don't know how much it costs to maintain an organ. I have no idea. But this thing was huge with metal pipes reaching right up to the ceiling, like one of the old school kind of Anglican organs. And this guy donated his time and his money. And I was talking to him and I was saying, oh, that's interesting. Why do you do that? And he's, oh, I'm not actually a Christian. And I asked him, why do you do this? Well, sleep in on Sunday. Don't come to church. Spend your money on holidays. And he said, oh, I feel like God's going to give me the tick, even though I don't really believe a lot of this stuff. And I'm thinking, well, that's interesting. It's not actually what is described in the Bible, is it? I think like he's kind of doing the religion of Cain, isn't he? And let's be honest, I think he's doing the religion of kind of us a lot of the time, falling into that kind of just tick the box. Whereas clearly Abel's sacrifice, his religion, his worship is from the heart, isn't it? Let's move on. It gets really, really dark here. Unfortunately, it's a dark passage. Let's go. Scene three. Then the Lord said to Cain, so there's a response here. Why are you angry? Remember how God sort of rebuked him and his face was downcast. That means he was actually really, really ticked off. It doesn't mean he was in repentance or pity or, or saying, oh man, I did the wrong thing. He was actually really angry at God's response. And then he says this in verse 6. God says to him, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Notice how sin is sort of explained here and described. There's, there's a difference. Remember chapter 3 it was kind of this kind of winnowy, kind of slippery serpent I think there was literal things there and maybe symbolic stuff. I don't want to push into that too much. Okay, a little bit subtle, a little bit mysterious. Here, sin is like this beast crouching at the door. We don't really know what it is. It's probably a lion. It could have been a dog or a wolf or something. We're not 100% sure. But God is actually graciously giving Cain a warning. We read this and we go, oh, this sounds really draconian and harsh. But God is actually warning him and saying, you know, this is a real issue. And the way he describes it, if you don't deal with sin, it's going to tear you apart. It's going to destroy you. 
It's going to destroy your life, is what he's saying. Very different to what we see in chapter 3. Sin is escalating. And we see that in the actions in a little while. It's getting bigger. It's getting worse. It's getting more serious. Again, I was thinking and reflecting on this. So how do I deal with, 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 with when someone points out my sin? How do I deal with that? Do I do what Cain does and kind of get really, really ticked off? So if you're living as a Christian, and I'm not assuming everyone here does, but there may be times in your life where a Christian has said, actually, Tim, I'm going to use myself as an example, there's something in your life that's actually really bad and needs to change. How do I respond to warning? Sometimes we see those warnings in the Scriptures and sometimes we see it from the words of other people, Christians. How do we respond? Do we get upset? Do we get angry? Or do we take it on board? Unfortunately, Cain doesn't take it well. Scene 4, gone from verse 8. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother I want want you to pay attention to how often it uses this phrase, his brother. It's emphasising the relationship between the two of them. They're not strangers. They're in this social connected network. His brother, his brother. And look how premeditated this is. While they were in the field, I imagine just Abel trusted his brother. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. First kind of occasion we see of this recorded. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Of course, God knows. I don't know, he responds. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Do you hear the arrogance of that? The snideness? The presumptiveness? He's talking to God here. I don't know about Cain's heart, but we can guess how resistant he was to God. It goes on, verse 10, the Lord says, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out, to me from the ground. I don't think we really get the emotion that's actually coming through that in the English translation here. Your brother's body is crying out for justice. Verse 11, now you are under a curse and driven into the ground, or from the ground rather, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Your brother, your brother, your brother. You killed him, you murdered him. It's horrific. And the point that I think is needed to be made here is you can't shuffle that away. You can't push it out the door. This is kind of where our culture's at, right? We like to play words and sort of mince on things and like to relativize evil and sin. But you can't. Look at the way it's described here. The blood of the oppressed and the victim is crying out for justice. And you can't shuffle that away. You can't. And I think he's talking about Abel, but I think he's talking about every victim who's been squashed and pushed and downtrodden by those who are more powerful. Just like Abel, their blood cries out for justice. How does God respond? How does God respond? It's quite staggering. We think that God will come down with judgment. And he does to a point. He casts Cain out. But Cain actually has this sort of, on a request, it's kind of self-pitying, it's not really repentant. But he says, I'm not going to survive. And so God gives him this kind of mark. It's called the mark of Cain. It's not on the screen. I didn't want to read it out. There's a lot of text. But basically... It means he wasn't going to die. He thought he was going to die out in the wilderness. But he's not going to die. Even in his sin, in his rebellion, in the horribleness of his actions, and we need to pause there and really grasp that, these actions are horrific. He's still under God's grace. And so we see this juxtaposition, don't we? 
humanity, civilization, kind of moving forward in brokenness, but also being upheld by God. I wonder if that's kind of the way history has worked. God withholds his judgment all the time. Things in this scene are horrible. They could have been so much worse. We see that in the history of our world, the history of our nation. This could literally be hell on earth. Theologians call it common grace, how God could do so much more than he does, but because of his loving, gracious attitude, he upholds and withholds judgment, and it means that we have good things that we can enjoy, culture and art and music, families, relationships. Have you ever thought that actually we don't really deserve any of those things? We don't. It's the story of Cain. It's pretty dark. Apologies. Let's move on. Lamech. It doesn't get any better. The ambiguity of civilization. That's what I've called this one. Again, I borrowed these titles, just so everyone knows. Happy to give the source if you want to know. So verse 17. I've skipped over a few bits and pieces there. So Cain made love to his wife, and she became became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch, man, there's some hard words in here. I'm going to do my best. Let's, let's see how we go. To Enoch was born Irad or Erad, and Erad was the father of Mahuhail. Mahuhail was the father of Methushal, and Methushal was the father of Lamech. I did okay. That's good. Let's move on. Verse 19. Now, this is where it gets pretty dark. Lamech married two women, one named Adar and the other named Zillah or Zihar. Adar gave birth to Jabel. And he was the father of those who lived in tents and raised livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played stringed instruments and pipes. Zihar also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal Cain's sister was Naima, actually, who married Moses. Now, again, we see these kind of two parallel interweaving sort of themes. People moving forward, but brokenness and depravity. And I really want to focus in on this guy Lamech, or Lamech. So it talks about how he married, but he actually married not one woman, but he married two. This is the first account of polygamy in the Bible. Some people say the Old Testament says polygamy is good. Actually, the Old Testament, through narrative, says that whenever polygamy happens, people break down and becomes distorted. Okay, so polygamy is never good, but it becomes even worse. The way these women are described is really, really bad. So firstly, um, it talks about a lady called Ada. That just means she was pretty. Okay, she was a good-looking woman. And the, woman, uh, the other one was called Ziha or Zila, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Basically, it means like trinket. So, like, she sounded nice. And so, in other words, these are kind of like trophy wives. One who looked good, one who sounded good. Okay, completely just dehumanized. So far removed from what we see with Adam and Eve. The connection and the closeness there. This guy, Lamech, has just broken that down. Completely distorted it. But in spite of that, look at what's happening here. Civilization's moving forward. People are doing good things with the gifts of God. Verse 20, Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who lived in tents. Things are growing, raised livestock, farming, agriculture. It's progressing. 21, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played stringed instruments and pipes, culture, art. Culture, art, things that we can listen to. Verse 22, Ziha or Zila also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. So industry, 
these things are growing. You see how sin and brokenness is kind of paired with the good things that God has actually planned for his people? Agriculture, animal husbandry, I'm not even sure what that is. I got that from a book. Cain grows, develops the first city. Good things paired with just brokenness of sin. This is civilization, isn't it? Have you ever just looked at the way our life and our world plays out? There's so many good things to be celebrated. We have uh, advances in medicine and technology, architecture. And yet we live in a broken, broken world. I um, was reminded of this just recently. I spent some time in the UK, some of you know, if you follow my Instagram. And I visited the British Museum. That was in London. And if you ever go there... It's just full on, it's just overwhelming, it's just almost too much to process. And I also went to the museum in Scotland, and that was a bit more simple, a bit more to my taste. I took my time, I was probably there for about four hours. And it's amazing, like my, some of my family is Scottish, I really felt a kind of kinship with the country. And um, just hearing the story was amazing, as much as it was disturbing. Because if you see the cycles of history, you see people striving for power, embracing violence, killing people who stood in their way, horrible attitudes towards women, abusive, unpleasant, destructive violence. And that's the history of the West. I'm sorry, and I don't mean to be negative and cynical, but it's just true. This isn't Christian reading of history. It's not a theological reading of history. It's a historical reading of history. And that's the line in which we stand. And so there's good things... And yet there's horrible, horrific things. Go to any museum, it will back me up. And this is what we see in the scriptures here. And even in the boast of this guy Lamech, look what it says here. Just so many conflicting ideas here. Really horrible. He's boasting to his wives. I hope this is on the screen. If not, it would be great if you were following me on the Bible in front of you. So Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zehar, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me a young man for injuring me. The picture is actually kind of someone who just sort of bumped into him, sort of nudged him with his elbow. But he killed the guy, and he's boasting. And he boasts and kind of plays on this idea of what Cain had. If Cain is avenged seven times, that's what was promised to Cain as like this part of his blessing, the mark of Cain, then Lamech is uh, revenged 77 times. He's boasting. He's boasting to his wives about his power and his strength about what he can do to other people. And amazingly, he's doing it through poetry. You see the conflicting ideas, the juxtaposition. And like I said, this is our world. This is why we have iPhones that, that, that recognize our faces. And that's what my new iPhone does. I don't know if it's touching anything. It looks at me and it turns on, right? And we have people in poverty just down the road. That's why we have more and more opportunities with education, at any time in history, yet people are crippled with anxiety and loss of identity and loneliness, cut adrift, broken. That's why we have crazy high-speed internet levels. At levels, honestly, I'm going to show my age here, that I never would have even guessed back when I was a teenager. Like that, I didn't even know the internet existed. And we use it to stream in high-definition pornography. It goes deeper in our personal relationships as well. They're so good, but they're so hard. Marriage, friendship, whatever you want to call it, there's blessing and there's curse, isn't there? 
Anyone who's ever drawn close to anyone would know that. And it begs the question, how do we respond? How do we respond to that, that darkness in our world, the good things and the bad things? Because there's two kind of things that I could see. We can kind of inoculate ourselves. You know, drink, a couple of pills maybe, sex, reruns of Netflix of two and a half men or whatever it is. Heaps of ways to inoculate ourselves and just not pay attention to it, not feel it. Or we can despair. Lose ourselves in the darkness. I think the Bible points us to another way. The Bible points us to another way. I'm going to finish with Seth. This is a ray of hope. Yes, Seth. Just the last little chunk. Unfortunately, I think it was chopped off the reading, but that's okay. Hopefully, you can see it on the screen behind me, hopefully. Verse 25. Adam made love to his wife again. She gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. It's interesting she just sort of says that, doesn't she? Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that, same, at that time, and I think this is the key, people began to call on the name of the Lord. People began to call on the name of the Lord, just in line of the depravity and the brokenness of the line of Cain. There's a new hope, and they're calling on God. And this is what sort of happens in the Old Testament. They're calling on God, expecting God to save and provide, because they know they can't do it themselves. It's like a vague hope. And in the New Testament, we see that personified in Jesus. And Jesus was one whose blood was poured out on the ground, but the blood did not call out for justice, but for forgiveness for you and for me. He died the death that you and I should have died, even though we are guilty like Cain. And in the deepest paradox of the universe, his blood cries out not for justice and judgment on us, but for our forgiveness to cleanse us from sin. That's the cry that these people in the first little chunk of humanity make when they're crying out for God. And we make the same cry when we cry out for the name of Jesus to save us. Just to finish, uh, I've got a really brief quote. It's not on the board, unfortunately, but it should be quick enough to, to memorise. A guy called Francis Schaeffer, who's a theologian, um, I think he was Dutch, maybe German, not really sure. He wrote after World War II, he's actually passed away now, but he had a really simple sort of way to describe humanity and, and civilization. He called it a glorious ruin. A glorious ruin, capable of so much amazing things, art, culture, beauty, progress, science medicine, things that our forefathers and our forebearers would never have even given guessed. Also capable of horrible sin and oppression and evil. And we do this collectively, but we do it individually as well. And yet Jesus offers us a way to cry out to him, because in him we have our salvation. I'm going to pray. I think Liam and Jack will lead us in a song. Let me pray. Our Lord in heaven, we recognize our sin and our brokenness. We recognize that even though we don't commit murder, so much of Cain's heart is our own. Our hearts are often twisted by envy and greed and brokenness. We reject you. We reject the good things that you offer us. Forgive us. And thank you so much that we can cry out in the name of Jesus. Thank you that even though we are ourselves glorious ruins, in his name we are redeemed. And in his name we have hope. Amen.